Well, good morning, church family. Our scripture reading will be from the Old Testament book of Esther. Esther chapter 2, verses 1 through 18, and you'll find that on page 354, page 354 of your church Bibles, the navy blue Bibles that are in the pouch in front of you. And I'm going to be reading um, Esther 2, 1 through 18, and then I'll be reading a short passage from uh, the New Testament book of 1 Peter chapter 3. But we'll begin with Esther chapter 2, verses 1 through 18. Later, when the anger of King Xerxes had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what he had decreed about her. Then the king's personal attendants proposed, let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in every province of his realm to bring all these beautiful girls into the harem at the citadel of Susa. Let them be placed under the care of Haggai, the king's eunuch who is in charge of the women, and let beauty treatments be given to them. Then let the girl who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This advice appealed to the king, and he followed it. Now, there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai, son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, who had been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, among those taken captive with Jehoiakim, king of Judah. Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. This girl, who was also known as Esther, was lovely in form and features, and Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother died. When the king's order and edict had been proclaimed, many girls were brought to the citadel of Susa and put under the care of Haggai. Esther also was taken to the king's palace and entrusted to Haggai, who had charge of the harem. The girl pleased him and won his favor. Immediately, he provided her with her beauty treatments and special food. He assigned to her seven maids selected from the king's palace and moved her and her maids into the best place in the harem. Esther had not revealed her nationality and family background because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. Every day he walked back and forth near the courtyard of the harem to find out how Esther was and what was happening to her. Before a girl's turn came to go into King Xerxes, she had to complete 12 months of beauty treatments prescribed for the women, six months with oil of myrrh and six with perfumes and cosmetics. And this is how she would go to the king. Anything she wanted was given to her to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go there and in the morning return to another part of the harem to the care of Shashgaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not return to the king unless he was pleased with her and summoned her by name. When the turn came for Esther, the girl Mordecai had adopted the daughter of his uncle, Abihail, to go to the king She asked for nothing other than what Haggai, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the harem, suggested. And Esther won the favor of everyone who saw her. She was taken to King Xerxes in the royal residence in the tenth month, the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. Now the king was attracted to Esther more than to any of the other women. 
And she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And the king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet, for all his nobles and officials. He proclaimed a holiday throughout the provinces and distributed gifts with royal liberality. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 through 5. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as braided hair and the wearing of gold jewelry and fine clothes. Instead, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to make themselves beautiful. It's the word of God. I think one of the strongest ministries at Windsor Road Christian Church is a ministry called Apples of Gold. And um, it is a ministry in the spirit of Titus chapter 2, where uh, our um, mature, seasoned, older women in the faith, for a season, mentor our uh, younger uh, 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 um, women who are, have just not walked uh, both the, through the joys and tribulations of life that these uh, seasoned godly women have, and especially as we think about uh, Mother's Day, and and Happy Mother's Day uh, to all of you here, and we think about the the, the mentoring that takes place, and the significance and the importance of uh, um, teaching and training in godliness, our apples of gold ministry uh, for our women of all walks of life uh, is such a rich, rich mentoring experience, and we've seen so much fruit of godliness from that. Apples of gold. Um, the world has its own program of mentoring, and I don't know if you've heard it or not, but here it is. It's called Toddlers and tiaras. Watch this. Oh my. <laughs> my favorite line was Mackenzie has matured. Um, I, I, saw, I saw that uh, I, I saw that for the first time Friday, and um, uh, I mean this program is in, well, it's been going on for two years now. It follows the uh, controversial world of child beauty pageants. As um, the viewer gets an up-close look at contestants and their families as these children prepare for these shows. And one of the features of the show is that it airs without any narration at all for the express purpose of avoiding critical judgment. As if it needed to. Um, that said, a journalist named Jessica Bennett 
has written a highly critical and well-worded article titled, Generation Diva, How Our Obsession with Beauty is Changing Our Kids. And this is what she says. She says, today's girls are getting caught up in beauty maintenance games at ages when they need to be learning how to read. Eight to 12-year-olds in the United States of America already spend more than $40 million per month on beauty products. And this obsession fosters the belief that how you look is who you are. How you look is who you are. And that with enough money, you can buy a better face and a different body. Apples of gold, toddlers and tiara. (laughs) Two programs, programs, um, rooted in two kingdoms, led by two very different kings. And now this issue of outward beauty and appearances certainly comes in to play. And the struggle to decide which kingdom I'm going to be a part of and which king is fit to lead certainly appears in Esther chapter 2. Esther, a Jewish orphan who uh, by the providence and plan of God became queen of the Persian Empire. And today, in Esther chapter 2, we're actually going to meet Esther. We haven't met her yet. And we see her rise to the royal throne. But what we're going to read here in Esther 2 is more than simply history. Esther is not just history, it's theology. By looking at these verses, we're really seeing two very different kingdoms in conflict. And the reader, the reader is challenged Challenge to consider this issue of outward appearances and assimilation. Beauty and belonging. And these verses raise questions like, how far along do we go with our culture before we draw the line and we say no, no more? So as we look at Esther chapter 2, I want us to consider first of all the world's perspective on beauty. What does the kingdom of this world have to say? What does the kingdom of this world believe about beauty? I want to answer that question. And I think you already know, but for clarification's sake, let's cover it. And then secondly, uh, these verses challenge us as God's people to consider, I mean, okay, you know, Have we bought into the world's perspective? Are we resisting the world's perspective? Uh, These pages which we're reading about the life of this heroine, all of a sudden, the tables turn on us. And we need to consider that. That's the second part of our message here. And then thirdly, and this is stay with me. Stay with me because uh, the best is this third movement in this message where we answer the question, How does God make his people beautiful? How does God make his people beautiful? And please don't leave until we get to the end because because it's resurrection, you know? What's the world have to say about beauty? How are God's people dealing with what the world has to say? And then how does God beautify? That's where we're going. Well, 
Well, in chapter 1 of Esther, we, we didn't see Esther at all. What, who we met in chapter 1 was the emperor, King Xerxes. And we learned, uh, we learned, what did we learn about King Xerxes? We learned that King Xerxes likes to drink. That's what we learned while hosting a six-month-long karaoke contest featuring 10 rounds with Jose Huervo. An inebriated Xerxes summoned his wife, Vasti, to appear nude before a banquet hall full of intoxicated men. Queen Vasti wisely refused, and as a result, a cultural or constitutional crisis emerged. And and in order to save face in this shame and honor culture, King Xerxes stupidly signed off on a law which stripped Vasti of her crown. Now, it's interesting that it was four years between getting rid of Vasti and crowning Esther. And in that four years, we learned that from the Greek historian Herodotus, we learned from Herodotus that Xerxes went to war with Greece. He was planning on doing that all, all, all along. But he lost this disastrous war with the Greeks. And afterwards, Herodotus tells us that Xerxes kind of went on a, on a, on a binge of sensual pleasure, which pretty much explains what's going on here in chapter 2. Verses 1 through 4 tell us that it says when the anger of Xerxes had subsided, he remembered Vashti. He remembered Vashti. And the idea there is that he he remembered with regret what he had done. He he regretted that. It was a a really foolish and stupid mistake. And and yet at the same time, verse 1 tells us, it says, we read in the New International Version, that he remembered what she had done and what he had decreed about her. This is interesting because in the Old Testament, the Old Testament comes to us by way of the Hebrew language, and literally in the Hebrew, it doesn't say what he had decreed against her. It's in the passive voice. What had been decreed against her. And the significance of that, the significance of that is that he's not taking responsibility. That's the significance of it. He's the one who decreed it, and yet it comes across as if this were something that was out of his hands. He presided over a culture of honor and shame in which he was unwilling to reverse his irreversible law. The almighty Xerxes, emperor of this world power, is prisoner to his own law. What to do? Don't want the king to be unhappy, so the court attendants chime in. All right, your highness, we have an idea. Let's conscript all of the young ladies throughout the empire uh, based on virginity and beauty and let's strip them from their families and their mothers and fathers. Let's haul them into the harem. Let's give them beauty treatments and you sleep with them and then make the one that pleases you the most sexually queen. And Xerxes thinks about it and says, brilliant, Verse 4, this appealed to the king. And in verse 8, the king's order goes out, right? And they corral these young women into Susa, and the contest began. And by the way, this was high, this was a highly unusual protocol for a job search. That's not how it was done. 
The proper protocol would have been for Xerxes to select a queen from among the seven most elite families in the Persian Empire. So this was totally not the norm. But I want you to notice something. Did you hear while we were reading these verses in Esther chapter 2, the author offers no information as to what the thoughts and fears and reactions were of the daughters or the families who were literally ripped away from their home into the capital city. I mean, nothing is mentioned. It's, I mean, the, the, the important feature is that however they felt, it's of no interest to the story. Because that's how brutal the system was back then. I mean, it, it, it was not a my body, my choice culture. It was a king's body, king's choice. It doesn't matter. And so these young ladies are handed around from home to harem to the king's bed. That's it. No questions asked. This was the brutality of the system. And, and this wasn't just a matter of uh, um, a sexist thing toward females because Herodotus did the very same thing with 500 boys whom he made eunuchs at his disposal at the palace. It was a brutal, brutal system. And in verses 12 to 14, we learn that prior to sleeping with the king, each girl would complete a one-year program of beauty treatments in which she spent six months in oil and six months in perfume and cosmetics and incense. These cosmetics were not applied like we would today. Rather, she would be immersed in either oils or bath oils or, or even an incense uh, bath and for 12 months to prepare for one date. And then it was her turn to meet with the king. And verse 13 says she could take whatever she wanted from the harem into the bedroom. And then the next morning she was returned, notice it says, to another part of the harem. In other words, she's not going home. See, home is, it's done. All right? She belongs to the king. And if He's happened to be pleased with her. He can call her again. And if not, she's going to spend the rest of her life, you know, pretty much like she lives in an upscale department store. Where do you live? Neiman Marcus. Well, that's not so bad. Well, you can never leave the store. See, that's the thing. You can never, ever leave the store for the rest of your life, you see. That's Persia in Esther 2. Now, let's take a time out for a minute. Question. What does this tell us about the world's perspective? Huh? That's the first question we're going to talk about, right? What's this tell us about the world? What, what, can we, what can we conclude about Persian culture regarding beauty and appearances and all? Well, well, we can conclude from Persian culture that what was important about a man was his wealth and his power, right? And what was important about a woman was her sensuality and her beauty, Right? Aren't you glad we don't live back then? Huh? Really? It's exactly the same way. The world has not changed. It has not changed. The, the world is like King Xerxes. And the world, the kingdom of this world, bases beauty on physical appearance and sensuality and sexual performance. That's the deal. The world says that externals and image matter more than character. The world says that what you have and how you look are more important than who you are. The world says that outward beauty and talent and power and connections 
are more important than where your heart is. And the world says that unless you get this kind of resume or this kind of much money or this much power or appearances, then don't expect the world's blessing. The world's point of view says you must look the way we want you to look if you want our approval. That is the world. It's the way it was 2,500 years ago in the capital city of Susa, in the Persian Empire, and it's exactly the same way today in America. A few years ago, uh, there was a study uh, done. Um, it was a, called uh, the Dove Real Beauty Campaign. And listen to this. 42% of first to third grade girls said they wish they were thinner, while 81% of 10-year-olds who aren't obese are afraid of getting obese. And one psychologist said, when you have, when you have uh, tweens putting on firming cream, it's clear that they're looking for imaginary flaws. And if tweens can be convinced that they need to spend money in order to perfect their already youthful skin, it is hard to imagine what they'll believe when they're 40. See, that's our world. It's not going to change. Our world judges your worth and your value based on outward appearance, based on sensuality, based on sexual performance. That's our world. Now, now we meet the major characters in verses 5 through 8. We meet Mordecai and Esther. Mordecai. Mordecai, before we even know his name, we know his background, we know his heritage. The author labors to communicate that Mordecai is a Hebrew, he's Jewish. Before we know his first name, we know he's Jewish, we know he's from the tribe of Benjamin, and then we, we read how his ancestors had been taken from Jerusalem. And it's interesting, let's put up Esther chapter 2 verse 6 from the New American Standard Bible. It says, concerning Mordecai's family, who had been taken into exile from Jerusalem with the captives who had been exiled, next slide, with uh, Jeconiah king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had exiled three times in Esther chapter 2, verse 6 in, in this version. We see that Mordecai's family is identified as exile. See? They're not Persian. He's Jewish from the tribe of Benjamin. He's an exile. That's his identity. And yet his name is Persian. Isn't that interesting? Mordecai, Marduka. And in verse 20... Verse 20 of Esther chapter 2, we see him, and the phrase says, he's at the king's gate. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean he's looking for a job? What does that mean to be at the king's gate? No, it means he already, he has a job. He is an official. To be at the, at the gate, gate is another word for palace. He is an official in the king's government, Mordecai. And he has adopted and is the guardian of this beautiful young lady named Hadassah. Hadassah. Hadassah means myrtle. Myrtle. And she's the daughter of Mordecai's uncle, which would make her his cousin. And obviously, he's old enough to be her father. So he reared her as his daughter. And she has a Persian name, Ishtar. Esther. It means star. And we learn Esther was among the young ladies conscripted 
to the palace. And verse 9 says, literally, she was good in his sight, meaning physically attractive. And this idiom just goes to further the fact that the whole Persian Empire runs on curb appeal instead of spiritual integrity. And yet, verse, uh, chapter 2 tells us that Esther didn't, didn't merely find favor, she won favor. And she makes a favorable impression on Haggai. And he moves her to the head of the line and gives her better food and better cosmetics. And Mordecai continues to check on Esther to see how she's doing. And, and then Esther not only won favor with Haggai, she won favor with everyone. And then lastly it says, she won the favor of the king. Verse 17, and the king was attracted to Esther. Literally, in the Hebrew, that the king loved her. Now, what was it he loved about her? Huh? Well, he loved her because she was the most beautiful, sexually thrilling virgin. That's, that's what happened. And, and, and as a result, three things occurred. First, Xerxes crowned Esther queen. Vashti's out. Esther's in. Secondly, Xerxes held another banquet. More feasting, more banquets. And then thirdly, the good citizens of Persia got a tax break. Yeah, that's what Esther chapter 2 verse 18 says. The holiday that we're talking about that we read in the NIV was actually a tax holiday. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. Wow, she must have really been beautiful. Now, let's take a second time out here, all right? Because we're bouncing from that world to this world. Let's take another time out here. Will you please imagine yourself not in a Christian congregation in 21st century America? Would you please imagine yourself in maybe a 4th century B.C., 400 years before Christ? You're not in a Christian congregation. You're in a synagogue. You're Jewish. But you don't live in Israel or Jerusalem. You, you don't have home field advantage. You're in a covenant relationship with God. You're in a world that defines beauty based on appearances and sensuality. And you're looking for a hero to believe in in that world. And you've just read Esther chapter 2. And it's Mother's Day if they had that back then. All right, are you, are you with me? Use your imagination now. Mothers, how would you use this episode in Esther's life to teach your teenage daughter as she stands on the threshold of womanhood? What do you do with this? <laughs> uh, what do you do? What message is there? Okay, now, honey, make yourself as attractive as possible to powerful men. Uh, sweetheart, use your body to advance God's kingdom while privatizing your faith in God. Uh, because, sweetheart, the ends justifies the means. Tough sell, huh? See, thus far, Esther has exhibited two character traits. She's passive and she's compliant. She's been brought up by Mordecai. She's, she's been taken to the palace. Everything we read about Esther is she's been taken. It's all in the passive tense. And then she pleases, right? She pleases. First Haggai, then everyone, then the king. She's compliant, passive and compliant. 
And furthermore, the pressure to comply does not come from the pagan empire. It comes from Mordecai. He was the one who told her not to say anything about her faith or her heritage. What is up with that? What is up with that? And you know, we, after the fact, we look back and say, well, I'm sure he was probably protecting her in that dangerous environment. Well, let me tell you something. (laughs) Some Hebrew rabbis are not so gracious. In the 1400s, a Hebrew rabbi writing a commentary on Esther wrote this. Why didn't Mordecai risk his life to take Esther to some deserted place to hide until the danger passed? He should have been killed rather than to submit to such an act. Why did Mordecai not keep righteous Esther from idol worship? Why was he not more careful? Esther should by right, listen to this, Esther should by right have tried to commit suicide before allowing herself to have intercourse with Xerxes. Wow. And you may ask, well, what choice did she have? I mean, she was so young. And the rabbis say, so was Daniel. Daniel chapter 1, verse 8, but Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself. And evidently, Esther had no qualms about eating the empire's food or being used as the emperor's plaything. And following Mordecai's advice, her Jewishness remained perfectly concealed. Was it really that big of a deal to hide one's Jewishness? Is it really that big of a deal for us to hide our faith just to gain tenure at the university? Or get that promotion at the company? Or earn the friendship of a peer group? You see, the scriptures are silent in evaluating Esther's behavior We just read the narrative as it unfolds. And I think part of this deliberate silence is meant to challenge God's people in exile. Have we become complacent? Are we trying to blend in? And the message is clear from God, is it not? God does not want his people buying into the world's definition of beauty. Esther has been prodded and fattened and fumigated and perfumed for 12 months, all to prep her for one night, a one-night stand in a royal bedroom. Is this worse than what some do for Hollywood or promotion at work? So, So how do God's people operate in a godless culture? At what point does cultural assimilation compromise our faith? And if a Christian living in a spiritually hostile place conceals his or her faith to avoid persecution, I mean, is this being shrewd or is this being cowardly? Which is it? And and, and you know what? I have to say this. I've just got to get this, you know, off my chest here. Look, I am, ladies, I am not asking you to throw away your lipstick. Okay? We're not going to have an altar call and you bring all your cosmetics. We're going to burn them all here. I'm not doing that. I'm not, I'm not saying that Mary Kay is the Antichrist. I'm not saying that at all. Okay? I just, all right? Are we okay? You know, I comb my hair this morning too. I put on some cologne. I wear starch shirts, blah, blah, blah. Okay, so, you know, I'm just, I'm, just, I, I'm, asking, I'm asking us to do a self-audit here. I'm asking us to ask the questions like, in what ways have I bought into worldly beauty? And I'm asking maybe a more 
provocative question than what we really want to hear on Mother's Day, and it's this question, how have I become a concubine to the world system? When you think about choosing your friends or your careers or your spouses, what's really driving that decision? But don't be so quick to say, well, not me. You know, in America, we idolize personal freedom, and then ironically, we use that very freedom to become slaves to careers we really don't like and aren't fulfilled. It's interesting how the empire has a very sneaky way of shaping us, and all of this for tax relief. Well, there's some bad news and some good news about Esther here. Hmm? You know, the, the bad news is, um, well, you know, the bad news is that we could hardly title this sermon, Dare to be an Esther. I mean, you just, because at this point, Esther, you know, Esther's no Daniel. And though she is outwardly beautiful in form and figure, could we really say that about her heart? Could we? Right now, she is married to an unbelieving pagan while successfully pretending not to be a child of the true and living God. And her rise to the throne has come by suppressing her identity as a citizen of God's kingdom. She is in the world and of the world in full cahoots with the empire's outrageous demands of winning the love of an unworthy king. And you need to know this. The only person with two names in the book of Esther is Esther. You know that? She's named Hadassah. She's named Esther. We don't have Mordecai's Hebrew name. We, we don't have two names for anybody. We just we, It's Hadassah, it's Esther, and it's as if she's living in two worlds. It's as if there's an internal conflict brewing, and at some point in time, she's going to have to choose which of those two worlds will define her. And, church family, so must we. Well, that's the bad news. Now the good news. What? Is there good news? Yes. You know what the good news is? The good news is this. It's just chapter two. (laughs) It can only get better. There's hope. I've never thought, I, I have never thought of Esther as a work in progress. Have you? But isn't that what we are? Yeah. See, God's not finished with her. And maybe you have found yourself with a similar history as Esther. In my life, I can point to moments where my past sin has become due out of compromise. And I'm so glad that God didn't just wad me up and throw me away. God is in the business of beautifying people. Well, let's hear about that for a moment, okay? That's our third movement here. You know what it is that beautifies God's people? You know what God does to beautify his people? You know what he does? He loves them. God's love is what beautifies his people. When Xerxes says, be my queen, you know what Jesus says? No, be my queen. I want to be your spouse. I want to be your husband. I want an intimate relationship with you. You see, when I get to the end of Esther chapter 2, there's still a longing in my heart. The story is not done. I need the end of the story. I need something more than just what Esther 2 has to offer. And, and so, so what I'm reading here is a longing, a hunger pang for, for, for a better king. 
When I read Esther 2, that offers me hope for Ephesians 5, where we read about that better king, King Jesus. Jesus, who gave himself up for his bride, the church. This church, Windsor Road Christian Church, Ephesians 5, 25 says, Christ loved the church, gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself, a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. So don't you see, Esther was loved by Xerxes because she was beautiful, but King Jesus loves us in order to make us beautiful. See, true beauty is the beauty that God creates in us, beginning with that which the eye cannot see, our hearts. And some of you here have absolutely no idea what it's like to have someone love your heart and your soul and your inner self because you've lived in Persia all your life. You've only known those who would love you for your form or for your figure or for your face. Xerxes loves you because you're beautiful, but I'm telling you, Jesus loves you to make you beautiful. And you know how he does that? You know how he does that? Well, here's how he doesn't do that. He does not go through a year-long beauty treatment. No, rather, he took a 33-year journey stripped of his eternal splendor. He had no pillow-top mattress upon which to sleep, no fattening foods with which to eat. One scholar says his pain was prerequisite for our beauty. And he bestows beauty, he bestows beauty on us by taking our ugly. And when you see Jesus, you see someone whom the prophet Isaiah said he had no beauty that anyone would be attracted to him. And on the cross, that was true. On the cross, Jesus Christ became ugly for our sin. Church family, please hear me. True beauty is not about self-obsession. It's about self-sacrifice. That's true beauty. Esther surrendered her beauty to an unworthy king. Jesus, the only worthy king, surrendered his life to give us his beauty. And when Jesus says, I want to be your spouse, he, you know, he uses such intimate language. Ephesians 5 is, is wedding day language. And he, he stands as a groom waiting for his bride to come down and, you know, Grooms stand right about here on their wedding day at Windsor Road, and they I look at them and they beam with pride as their bride comes down. Why? Why does he beam with pride? Oh, because she looks so good. Why does she look so good? Because she's got all that goop on. Of course she looks good. <laughs> but you see, Jesus, see, this metaphor of, of marriage, Jesus stands there, he beams with us. Why? Because... Before him, there's, there's nothing, nothing in us outwardly that would appeal. Nothing. And yet, in spite of all of our flaws, he cleanses us. His own heart bursts at the sight of us. He sees us 
And his heart just beams because he's never seen anyone so beautiful. If only you would believe that. Do you believe that? See, that's what we're talking about. Are you going to believe King Jesus or are you going to believe King Xerxes? That's the choice here. And if you will just believe King Jesus, I'm telling you, once you are assured of Christ's love, when you go through suffering and trials, oh, it just makes you more internally beautiful. Because you see, Jesus, Jesus too puts us through beauty treatments. He does. They're spiritual beauty treatments called suffering. Suffering. And when we go through suffering with the assurance that we already are beautiful to Christ, then we just become more and more beautiful. And do you know what? We too will one day have a banquet, just as Esther did, you know? Esther enjoyed a banquet at the end of chapter 2, and I'm telling you, that's nothing compared to the banquet feast of the Lamb, which Christ is preparing which we will sit at his side wearing a crown that he has purchased and we will be clothed in his robes of righteousness. And when you have that vision and that hope and that assurance in your heart, then you can see the empire's antics for what it's really like. And you know that one day we will be with Jesus. We can live lives of greatness now. I want to have a time where I want to give you mothers and wives and ladies, I want to give you a gift here before we leave. Can I do that? Happy Mother's Day, Nani. Happy Mother's Day. Here we go. Happy Mother's Day. Mother's Day. Here we go. Happy Mother's Day. Happy Mother's Day. Here we go. Happy Mother's Day. Happy Mother's Day. Happy Mother's Day. Okay, I'm going to have to keep this one. We have more in the back, but I want you to pay attention to what this says. I want to give every lady in here a bouquet. This is a bouquet you're getting. This doesn't look like a bouquet. Now, if I'd have given you a bouquet, see, I can give you a bouquet, but that's from the kingdom of Persia, and those flowers fade tomorrow morning. But I'm going to give you a bouquet here, these little packets of seeds, from the heart of 1 Peter 3, 3 and 4. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which is of great worth in God's sight. I'm telling you, this is the seed of God's word that's planted in every one of your souls and every one of your spirits right now. And you let this, you let this seed the seed of God's word, blossom in your heart and in your life. And listen, listen. When Jesus comes and we're in the new heavens and the new earth, we're gonna see the blossoms we've been longing to see. And once those blossoms are seen and once they, once they bloom, they will never, ever fade. In fact, they just keep getting more and more beautiful and that is our promise that's the hope that's what the kingdom of jesus offers you over and above the kingdom of xerxes and i just want to encourage you i want to encourage you and and you know what so many of you 
And that's why I talk about our apples of gold. So many of you are, have bought into King Jesus' garden. And those blossoms keep growing and growing. And you are beautiful from the inside and out. And, you, and when we get to heaven, we'll see, the, we'll see the beauty in all of its fullness. And this pastor believes, you know what? This pastor believes that you're already pretty beautiful now. <coughs> and, and the best is yet to come. So, happy Mother's Day. Choose Jesus. Let's stand.